a lot of people actually want to think of parts of the brain as sort of doing emotions, as it were. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the themes that Damasio brings up and that I, uh, you know, reiterate and expound on in, in my book is that, well, actually, emotion is, is one of these areas that, that really engages actually the whole body. Hello and welcome to episode number 205, The Armin Show Podcast. On this one, we have a great episode. We have Professor Alan Jasnoff from the MIT Center for Neurobiological Engineering, author of The Biological Mind, How Brain, Body, and Environment Collaborate to Make Us Who We Are. Glad to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Armin. This is wonderful. Now, can you let us know uh, what has led you to where you are in your career up until now across different institutions that you've gone to? I became interested in science as a, as a high school student and actually was in particular seduced by uh, the attraction of molecular biology, uh, you know, which at the time was making great strides and um, just the, the kind of neat idea that we could, uh, you know, break uh, biological systems up into their components, their molecular components and understand how these, you know, little machines work together uh, to build up uh, biological function essentially from chemistry, uh, really appealed to me. And so I majored in molecular biology. Uh, I went on and I did a, um, a, a master's degree uh, in, uh, in chemistry, but I was studying uh, the process whereby uh, proteins, which are the sort of, uh, you know, the businessmen of the, of the cell, the workers mm -hmm. of the cell, uh, the, the, the process by which proteins, uh, you know, find their structure and thereby their function. And uh, then I did a, a PhD in, in what's called structural biology, where you basically uh, study the atomic level structure of molecules and uh, how they perform their functions. And at that point, I was actually, um, you know, I still thought molecular biology was pretty nifty, but um, I felt like I needed some kind of um, sort of, in a sense, more philosophical uh, counterpoint to the to the to the biology that I was studying, the molecular biology I was studying, and so I um, gravitated towards neuroscience. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the time, I didn't know anything about it, uh, but I resolved to uh, try to do something to bridge uh, molecular level understandings of biology with the kind of uh, large scale um, uh, uh, studies of brain function, ultimately mental function, that neurobiology, of course, attain, uh, you know, attempts to attain. And so I went into the particular line of work that I, I now specialize in. I, I specialize in trying, in fact, to make that bridge between molecular level function and whole brain function. And uh, we use um, uh, uh, a technique called magnetic resonance imaging, or MRI, uh, for a lot of our work. Mm -hmm. um, MRI allows people to peer into the living brain without cutting up uh, whatever it is that they're looking at, you know, often human patients who don't really want to be cut up. Right. And, uh, and so my lab uh, spends a lot of time trying to develop and then, and then apply uh, little uh, molecular probes, the, the kind of... Uh, uh, they're sort of like, you can imagine them like uh, chemical dyes, things that have a color or a, um, uh, or a, or a, a brighten or darken, in our case, MRI images. Mm -hmm. And these things are sensitive to neural activity. So when neurons or other cells in the brain do stuff, our little uh, agents, molecular probes as we call them, uh, they respond and then we can read that out by imaging. And this is a, it's a big ordeal actually to mm -hmm. get this kind of technology assembled. Um, but it, 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 you know, 
focuses our attention on the kind of diversity of processes involved in brain function and how they uh, relate to each other and, um, you know, also to things that are going on outside the brain. And that is sort of the hook for my, uh, for my book, um, which is attempting to, um, in a sense, complexify the brain to, um, to uh, highlight um, the ways in which it's actually not the sort of simple, um, uh, uh, you know, surrogate for uh, the soul uh, that, that many people have come to think of it as, and, mm-hmm. and it's it's really actually a, a soup of interacting molecules that that also, um, you know. Uh, have really important connections to the rest of the body um, and and that really are part of an integrated system. Right. That makes sense. Uh, You described in the book how there are so many cells and then the number of synapses and then how the interconnectedness takes it to many orders of magnitude larger than what we could recreate with a computer currently in any local form. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm actually optimistic about the the possibility of uh, modeling some aspects of what brains mm-hmm. can do in computers. So I, I wouldn't want to kind of emphasize that you can't right, right, right. model model brain with a computer. But I think what what I what I did want to um, you know what I did want to address in, in one chapter of my book was just limitations of thinking of the brain as a computer. Um, you know the brain uh, like you know essentially anything in nature can be thought of as as some form of machine, something that connects inputs to outputs. I mean, even a stone uh, is a bit of a machine, especially if you use it to, you know, uh, build a wall. But, um, uh, the, um, uh, you know, I mean, we, we can break we can break anything up into its component parts and right. try to analyze it that way. Um, but the way that we go about that often, um, A, reflects our biases, and B, colors the kinds of conclusions we can get from it. And so, you know, in the book, I talk a little bit about how, um, you know, how it's it's possible, you know, even likely, I think, that, you know, the appeal of thinking of the brain as a computer is partly driven by um, our wish uh, to um, kind of... Uh, mm-hmm. uh, think of ourselves as more than just slimy biology, uh, you know, something that could be propagated, um, uploaded, made immortal, um, right. the way that you could imagine, you know, the diagram of a computer or the, the information content of a system being encapsulated and, and kept separate. So I argue that, um, you know, well, actually, there's just so much um, sort of, uh, you know, chemical and cellular complexity in the brain that um, although, of course, you could model it in a computer, it's not necessarily that that useful uh, to constantly be thinking of the brain in that way. Right. Now, connected to this as the philosophical view that you had discussed, is this, I have sort of a reductionist view like that, breaking things down into components. Have you always had that sort of a view in relation to things? Well, I, you know, as I as I told you in my life story, I right. mean, actually, I'm very much drawn towards a reductionist view, and and you know, all of my work attempts uh, to um, analyze uh, uh, the brain mechanistically, you know, to try to figure out well, how does it work, as opposed to just what is it like, mm-hmm. and um, that's true for 
you know, I would say probably most neuroscientists, that most neuroscientists want to bring a mechanistic edge um, to uh, to the brain and, and you know, actually, biologists generally uh, want to do this, um, and and that is, you know, that is what reductionism uh, allows. Um, but I think, you know, we also have to keep in mind, and, and many of us do, that reductionism also has its limits, and that, you know, uh, especially when we try to conceptually uh, reduce the functioning of, you know, some natural entity like the brain, conceptually reduce its functioning down to some simple set of things. Mm-hmm computer analogy being a good example of that, we actually may miss a lot. You know, so again, let's take the computer analogy. Well, it's obvious, obviously, uh, uh, you know, a, a tendency if we're, if we're thinking of the brain as a computer mm-hmm. to think of its functional elements as like wires, like transistors, you know, like, you know, it, the information flowing around the brain becomes mm-hmm. bits and so on. And um, those are actually... Um, you know, somewhat useful ways to think of the brain, uh, you know, uh, 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 by analogy, but we also miss a lot. And so, you know, uh, for instance, when we think of the brain as uh, a bunch of cells connected by wires, well, is that actually really the right way to analyze this function? You know, there's a lot of stuff floating around between the wires uh, that shapes the activity of the cells. You know, the most famous things, of course, being uh, neurotransmitters and neuromodulators. Um, these are actually the molecules that get um, perturbed in some way when we, you know, take drugs or, uh, 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 you know, get uh, certain types of therapy. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're a huge part of how the brain works. And to the extent we think of it all as wires and circuits, well, we may be less sensitive to those things. So I think for people in the field, uh, it can be limiting to um, have too uh, too powerful an analogy uh, for the brain uh, in front of us, and then for the wider world, the people who are not professionals and mm-hmm. don't know about all these kind of nuanced things that most neuroscientists do, of course, know about. For the wider world, I think there is a cost, and actually, this is really what um, the book more generally uh, is is um, you know is about or is is pushing pushing back against, which is the idea that we can um, kind of encapsulate uh, ourselves or everything important about ourselves into our brain, that actually there is this essence of who we are and what makes us do what we do that um, lives in in a computer-like entity in our heads, as opposed to uh, a different view, which is that, well, there is this biological entity, the brain, that's very important for what we do, which is required, uh, but it's actually um, integrally associated with everything around it. And that, uh, that uh, association mm-hmm. ranges from molecular and cellular scale all the way up to very conceptual things about, you know, for instance, how we get meaning uh, for words or for concepts or for our lives as a whole, you know, how the external world impinges on our behavior and things like that that are, that are uh, you know, very macroscopic and very broad. Right. I did notice that theme throughout the book that it's looking at it as it's more connected to the body or a larger theme or message or more specifically what it directly handles like eye input or whatnot. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, you had mentioned in chapter four of your book, Scanning for Godot, that the first imaging was using radio tracers, then later PET imaging. Uh, from when you started to currently where you are now, how has imaging mostly changed in the field? Well, um, you know, so imaging uh, 
can take place at various different lengths and scales. Mm -hmm. And um, in the field of neuroscience currently, um, I would say probably the most active research is, um, is it at a sort of a middle level uh, between cells and groups of cells, uh, including whole brains for small, small uh, animals. And it uses um, optical imaging, which is, you know, probably for most people, the most famous type of imaging. It's what you do when you use a telescope or a microscope. Mm-hmm. And people uh, recently have been able to use uh, microscopes to see the entire brains of small transparent um, animals. So there's a type of fish that's famous for being clear uh, in its young form. And um, researchers have been able to measure uh, activity signals from every single cell in the brain of this fish. It's called a zebrafish. Um, In mice and rats, which are also very widely used, um, uh, people have been able to see you know, I would say sort of cubic millimeters. In some cases, they can see uh, the whole surface of the brain, but they can't get very deep. And that really um, points to the the, the main problem uh, with optical imaging, which, as I say, is probably the most vivacious type of, uh, you know, or let's say it's the most vivacious imaging area uh, in, in neuroscience today. Uh, mm-hmm. It can't penetrate deep into the brain uh, for opaque uh, for opaque brains, and uh, for that reason, there's sort of another scale of imaging that's performed uh, that uses uh, primarily MRI magnetic resonance imaging, which is also sort of the workhorse technique in my lab, and um, that uses um, so MRI is able to image the entire human brain. And if you do something called functional MRI, which is basically when you take uh, rapid scans um, in succession from a person while they're doing something or experiencing something, you can actually measure uh, signals that relate to their brain activity. And um, those signals actually come about from little changes in blood flow that take place in areas of the brain that are active. But... Uh, a lot happens between uh, the, the function of individual molecules and cells in the brain, for instance, the release of neurotransmitters or electrical signals that people think are really important, um, and those mm-hmm. blood flow changes. And so as a result, there's actually a lot of interest in trying to, you know, sort of combine the, 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 uh, the non-invasiveness and whole brain coverage that MRI affords with um, the much more developed molecular techniques that, that are compatible with optical imaging. So that's kind of the sweet spot that my lab works on. Uh, it's pretty tough work, actually. Uh, we, we spend a lot of our time developing uh, molecules that actually make this translation, and we've, we've shown that they um, can enable certain types of signals in the brain to be mapped. But we're working up from rodent, you know, rodents, rats and mice, uh, with this now, and it's still going to be a little while before we can do this stuff in people. Mm-hmm. Is some of the idea there is to like create pathways that shows that this causes this leads to this in the brain and where it goes through? Yes, yes. I mean, you know, there's so much going on in the brain, uh, in every cell in the brain, even uh, that um, you know, it's it's going to be an extremely long time before an individual experiment could possibly mm-hmm. uh, you know elucidate sort of uh, you know anything approaching comprehensiveness, frankly, right. um, of all that stuff. Uh, but you know, we want to we want to understand, for instance, um, the the spatial and temporal dynamics of signaling. So, you know, a simple example might be, uh, supposing we're interested in a particular region of the brain, for instance, a region that's involved in 
uh, processing, uh, rewarding stimuli or uh, engaged by drug addiction or something like that. Mm -hmm. And we want to see, well, what is all the input that this part of the brain is getting? We could try to use one of the molecular techniques that my lab works on to try to map that. Um, we've done a little bit of that type of experiment, for instance, using a sensor for a neurotransmitter called dopamine, mm -hmm. which is famous as, as, as sort of a, a pleasure neurotransmitter, although it's a little more subtle than that. Mm -hmm. But we've been able to, for instance, map the distribution of dopamine signaling uh, in the brain in deep brain structures for the first time using the type of uh, techniques that, that we work on. But there are, of course, many, many other pieces to the puzzle um, of how um, uh, you know, even a simple behavior might be, um, might be shaped by brain function, you know, um, my book uh, might might actually um, encourage some kind of pessimism about uh, about achieving this. Um, but actually, in the long run, I'm I'm pretty optimistic about it. Just it may not happen in my lifetime, but, um, you know. But we'll we'll get there. Um, right. Yeah. I, I I think. I mean, one of the things that I guess my book is arguing is that just understanding everything that's going on in the brain is not enough, and and that makes the problem quite a bit harder, actually. Right. That makes sense. I've noticed the items that are perceived somewhat pessimistically by a percentage of the population are the only things I can really connect with because they're real, they're actual, and they're not. They look pessimistic only when everything else is looked at really uh, calmly or positively. But actually, the details are important. One thing you had mentioned there, dopamine episode uh, two hundred one. I had talked with a psychiatrist. His book is only about dopamine, so it was uh -huh. nice that the. Uh, that connects to that the importance of it, importance of it as a reward uh, molecule. Yes. Dopamine is often everyone's favorite neurotransmitter. <laughs> right, that's the one they go through. Now, one thing I was wondering was, uh, I always think about the prefrontal cortex as the higher level region. I feel like I identify with it in some form because of its. Uh, I don't know if it's exactly connected, but the dorsolateral PFC for that end, and then the ventromedial PFC for the emotion end. How visible is it when examining the brain that emotion or logic is connected to those regions? Yeah. Well, you know, uh, so I work mainly with rats and mice, mm -hmm. which don't have those regions. They don't have that. Okay. I'm off the hook for this, um, but, um, at least in my, in my laboratory work. Right. But um, you know, one of the points that actually I try to make in the book about um, a bit about how um, experiences and mental functions um, go beyond just the brain actually relates, in particular, to emotions, um, because you know, of course, there are parts of the brain that are um, consistently activated uh, by emotions or consistently engaged, and there are regions where if you um, make uh, lesions or if they're disrupted for some reason. For, for some reason, uh, you know, usually you wouldn't lesion a person on purpose, but if they're disrupted for some reason, like a stroke or, a, or an injury, um, that, that emotional functions are, are disrupted. And, and one of the most famous examples, in fact, uh, is, uh, or, you know, comes from a region of the prefrontal cortex that was uh, disrupted in this, this famous um, case study, this famous uh, patient named Phineas Gage, who had a um, a, a, a piece of metal blown through part of his brain because of an accident. Um, and uh, he had distorted uh, emotional function uh, as a result of that and, and actually cognitive function more generally. Um, and this has been written about very eloquently by um, uh, Antonio Damasio um, mm -hmm. in, in his famous Descartes' Error. Um, and, you know, a lot of people actually... Um, 
want to think of parts of the brain as sort of doing emotions, as it were. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the themes that Damasio brings up and that I uh, you know, reiterate and expound on in, in my book is that, well, actually, emotion is, is one of these areas that, that really engages actually the whole body. That, uh, you know, in fact, this region of the prefrontal cortex that's, that's injured in some patients may actually be um, partly responsible for interactions with the body. But, um, and that, that's a hypothesis. It's not, I, I would say, proven. Um, but um, uh, what is proven is that there are stereotypical bodily reactions that accompany each emotion and that our perception of different emotional states, whether they're consistent or not, engages uh, the rest of the body. Um, a study that I call attention to in, in, in my book is actually um, uh, kind of a, a, a psychology study that was done by a group in, in Finland who got a set of volunteers to label uh, pictures of, them, you know, of, of humans, mm -hmm. outlines of people, uh, to label them with areas that they felt were activated or suppressed during the experience of different emotions. And they were able to come up with uh, what seemed like consistent patterns of activation or suppression. Now, we don't know exactly what that means. What does it mean when my arm is activated? Right. It's heightened sensation. I mean, it was it was phrased, I, I believe, in a, in, a, in a relatively general way. But nevertheless, mm -hmm. um, there's, there, there were some consistent responses uh, across uh, uh, subjects and across um, actually different um, uh, cultural groups uh, who answered um, these questions. And, uh, you know, it really goes back to, um, uh, or at least it, it, it's, it's often said to go back to um, observations from Charles Darwin, um, who uh, uh, described uh, organisms as kind of throwing themselves into these bodily states that basically represent, uh, represent emotions uh, in animals and to some extent people. Right. I was looking at that image, uh, if I'm thinking of the exact same one in the book, and it was nice because it showed that love lights up so much of the body and then sadness. It, it actually felt like this was very accurate to what I feel when I sense people having certain emotions, and that was cool to see. Yes, and I, I think, you know, there, there is a, a reality that I think most people accept that, there, you know, there are these subjective body-wide feelings that go with emotions, you know, and we, we have obviously all these kind of metaphors that we use, like our heart dropping and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, our... our uh, uh, you know, hair standing on edge. So some of these things are more metaphorical than others. Right. Uh, and, and uh, you know, they're widely spread and widely used, and, and I think truthfully. Right. Now, connected to that, you were talking about uh, people who are injured in some form. You have a chapter called Beyond the Broken Brain. And mm -hmm. how much of current research now, as opposed to earlier, is based on individuals where something was broken versus analyzing, let's say, a fully healthy individual? Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, you know, it's it's a tried and true approach in biology, in particular, to purposely break things mm -hmm. um, in 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 cells or molecules or organisms. If you uh, work with animals, um, and and see what goes wrong, and um, you know, so so I think a, a you know a, a research program, for instance, that aims to understand well what's going on in Alzheimer's disease, mm -hmm. uh, you know, would would purposely make changes in uh, usually in an animal model, uh, that emulate what's wrong in human Alzheimer's and that hopefully would give some insight into what could cause analogous behavior in an animal. Now, 
that may be a little difficult to put your finger on, uh, but it's still what's done. Um, and what my chapter, The Broken Brain, is about, or Beyond the Broken Brain about, is, is about, is actually about how, um, well, uh, there are actually limits to that approach. And, um, you know, again, the reductionism sort of drives us in that direction. It drives us to find the smallest thing that we can screw up uh, to emulate, um, uh, uh, you know, a problem or a, or a, a disease, let's say, that we're trying to study. Um, you know, in that chapter and in my book, of course, I'm talking specifically about mental illness. And um, what I am calling attention to in the, in the chapter is the fact that, well, actually, mental illness is not simply brain disease. It's not always caused by things that are wrong in the brain. Now, the brain is engaged by anything uh, that involves the mind. You can't have a mind without a brain. But mm-hmm. there are a lot of things that go into defining and causing mental illness that are not originating from the brain. Um, so a classic example that I uh, cite is the example of um, something called general paresis, which is sort of a schizophrenic-like condition uh, that people in, uh, you know, before the early 20th century uh, used to have as a byproduct from syphilis, so, you know, sexually transmitted disease. Mm-hmm. In the late stages of syphilis, um, there'd be um, uh, this condition called neurosyphilis that would affect the brain uh, because of pathologies caused by bacteria in the blood, in the rest of the body. And um, that would lead to this kind of dementia uh, that, um, uh, that was called at the time general paresis, and it was one of the biggest causes of people entering uh, mental asylums before the development of antibiotics that then, you know, could cure syphilis. And it's a great example of how something outside the brain is the root cause of um, what, you know, was then regarded as a mental illness, you know, sending people to insane asylums. Um, there are other examples that are, that are classic. So, for instance, one of the vitamin uh, B deficiencies uh, also caused, uh, 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 you know, cognitive dysfunction that, that, that sent people to asylums in the olden days. Uh, but even today, um, we have, um, you know, external conditions, things that are going on in our bodies or outside that cause uh, mental disruptions on a routine basis. Um, you know, organ, organ uh, failure, for instance, uh, often will cause... Uh, chemical imbalances in our bodies that affect our brain function and ultimately our mental function. Um, and even further out, let's say the furthest out, mm-hmm. um, the fact that, well, the very way we think about mental illness is fundamentally social. You know, no mental illness is defined in an absolute sense. It's always defined with respect to, you know, let's say the consensus among doctors or the normal, you know, some standard of normalcy uh, for people in society. And um, by reducing mental illness to brain disorder, well, we gloss over all that stuff, you know. And, and that, that's both scientifically important because, for instance, when we talk about schizophrenic patients, you know, well, we have to realize that who counts as schizophrenic depends on who diagnosed them and where they were living and, you know, what kind of society they were in and so on. Uh, so that's a, a scientific issue because we can't cure them if we don't know that, they're, right. you know, that they have something consistent wrong. Um, and, and even beyond that, because, you know, our whole, you know, attitude towards mental illness is, you know, if it's conditioned on the idea that, well, these people have broken brains, that's where their problem is. Well, that's going to change our attitude 
towards people with mental illness compared with, let's say, if we have a slightly more nuanced view where we say, okay, well, you know, these are people who have problems when they're in this kind of scenario, this kind of social context, let's say. Uh, but, you know, they might be doing fine in a different context. Um, you know, uh, an example, I think, where the, the politics around this way of, of thinking about mental illness is particularly important is is autism, you know, which some people want to just describe as, okay, that's a mental disorder. It's got brain dysfunction that's underlying it. But okay. there are other people who, who think, okay, you know, okay, maybe somebody thinks I'm autistic, but actually I have a different way of interacting with people. I'm different. It's not a mental disorder. It's uh, it's true that I have a different set of behaviors, but it's not brain dysfunction and it's not a mental disorder. Right. The perspective is a big deal. I've noticed this. If the perspective comes from that thing is not good, it doesn't give it any credit for what it is. Maybe it's really effective in a certain scenario or in a logical way or in a risk-taking manner, but then if it's not among the lines of a majority or even a sub-majority, then it might be pushed aside, but there's value to that. I mean, a big, a big issue in, in, you know, around, in and around mental illness is the issue of stigmatization, you okay. know, because uh, for hundreds of years, people with mental illness uh, have been stigmatized. Uh, in, in the olden days, it led to them being kind of sequestered in these asylums, which had you know, all kinds of tortures that we would um, uh, never want to support in the current Age. But even now, uh, you know, people are afraid to come forward uh, uh, with mental problems, and um, uh, you know, there's there's general uh, sort of disapproval of of mental illness, and, and basically the stigma is still there. And some people have argued that, well, if you treat mental illness as simply the result of brain dysfunction, then there should be no stigma. It should be just as if um, you know someone had the flu or cancer. Um, but actually, that's really not true. <clears throat> for a couple of reasons, you know, one is that the defining feature of mental illness still remains, you know, sort of some sort of different behavior, different behavior in, in society. And so there's always going to be, uh, you know, social uh, condemnation of that to some extent. And then the other thing is that, well, just as you wouldn't want to own a broken car or, um, you know, a broken blender or anything mm -hmm. that's broken. Uh, you generally don't want to depend on people with broken brains. And so if that's your attitude about what's causing mental illness, then you'll tend to distance yourself. You might tend to distance yourself from people. And there have been studies that show that this is indeed a reaction. Uh, whereas, again, if you have kind of a more uh, nuanced view of what's going into mental illness, it's sometimes called a psychosocial view, um, you're probably more likely to attribute, uh, let's say, a breakdown or uh, some kind of behavior uh, that, that you find antisocial, uh, to a mix of causes, and you're less likely to take it out on that person. Um, at least that's, uh, that's, that's a theory. Right. Now, one thing is uh, I've thought about in relation to uh, the brain and, well, not illness, but like, for example, when we have uh, a decision that we make that it's based on a bunch of decision trees below it, let's say, in our brain, and then it builds up to the choice that we decide, and we prune away the ones we didn't choose. I feel like our society kind of connects with that, pruning away or trying to push aside the decisions it doesn't blend with, so it's kind of like we're all connected as a collective, which sort of connects with the simulation theory. How do you feel about all of us being part of uh, one unit that's represented in a, it's almost like a program? Well, um, you know, so making decisions is, of course, a, a pretty interesting thing that uh, the brain helps us with. And, mm -hmm. uh, 
you know, studying the process of decision making uh, in, in neuroscience is a, is a big area and a very interesting area. Uh, but actually, one of the things that's been, um, you know, a bit of a problem in the field is finding out uh, where in the brain we can you know, we can we can see decisions being made as opposed to see the effect of whatever it is that caused the decisions. Mm -hmm. An example is, is a famous paradigm that um, some neuroscientists on the West Coast uh, in the U.S. have used uh, where they're, uh, they train monkeys to look at a bunch of dots that are moving in one direction or another. Mm -hmm. Often they're, dots, they're, they're, they're a jumble of dots. They're moving both directions. And, um, you know, of course, uh, if you... Um, are, um, let's say, patient enough as an observer, whether or not you're a monkey or a person, you could actually, of course, count up the number of dots moving in each way if you're, you know, you have to have the right attention span and the right short-term memory to make this happen. Mm -hmm. um, and you could make a decision. Um, but in some sense, you know, that decision is, is simply determined by the stimulus. You know, is there a place where the consciousness kicks in and, transfor and, and transforms the stimulus, these moving dots, into a judgment, up or down, let's say. Mm -hmm. um, and and it, it's pretty hard to, to, to kind of find evidence for such a thing. Instead, what people have found, um, what the researchers who study this have found is, you know, areas of the brain that seem to sort of, let's say, uh, uh, you know, build up as they as they witness more and more of the stimulus. But mm -hmm. again, you can't tell whether it's driven by the stimulus or um, you know whether they're you know. Uh, well, in fact, specifically, it is driven by the stimulus, and it's mm -hmm. pretty to, to find a place where that stops. And so, you know, when you think of decision making as a process that is performed by the brain, well, it's it's in real life, mm -hmm. you know examples like that, that you are immediately confronted with the fact that, well, actually, there is no decision mm -hmm. that's formed only by the brain. It's always dependent on the stimuli right. uh, that we're basing our decisions on. And now, then uh, we get to a second issue, which is this, that, you know, so the example that I gave you was a case where a monkey is trying to make a perceptual uh, a perceptual decision based on a perceptual input, and that's great. It's a pretty well-defined task, and that's why it can be studied in the lab. But in in reality, of course, we make decisions about all kinds of things all all the time. You know, including really dumb things like you know how fast to tap our feet while we're talking to somebody over Skype, and <laughs> uh, and and there's all kinds of stuff that goes into those decisions that we don't know about uh, in the sense that we're not conscious of these things. And usually when we study uh, decision-making in the lab, well, we make an active effort to filter out all the inputs uh, that might be uh, affecting our decisions other than one particular input that we care about, like the moving dots I told you about. Sure. So um, decision-making is actually really a great example of something that I think a lot of people want to reduce to the brain. You know, it's all stuff happening, our brain interacting, and the output is we just we do what we want. But in reality, it's uh, we never have our brains separated from everything going on around us, and there's essentially never a decision that doesn't uh, that doesn't in some way get influenced by um, the world around us and how it's impinging on us, even at every moment, not just through our upbringing. I mean, at every moment. Right. I used to think about this. I used to inform people this was my thought that everything was stimulus response, which was not really appealing to the listeners, but it just felt that I wasn't really doing much. It just it would flow to me, flow out of me, and uh, there was no actual 
stuff happening. There's maybe processing along the way, but it's not the up or down, like you said. I thought about yeah. that. Well, the, you know, there was a movement called behaviorism that was popular in the U.S. in the sort of middle of the 20th century that attempted to essentially black box the organism, black box, you know, the person or the, or the animal, um, and, uh, and in fact reduce all behavior to stimulus response. That's not actually, uh, well, A, it's not in fashion, and B, I'm not actually um, arguing for that. Right. Um, in fact, there is a lot that happens inside, and it involves the brain and the rest of our body, and we talked about a little bit of it because, you know, the bacteria that cause syphilis may be right. part of it, uh, hopefully not for any of us. Um, uh, so there is stuff that goes on in the box. Um, it's not just a stimulus that happens and then you get a response. There is great complexity in, in the middle. Right. But I think what the reaction against behaviorism uh, led to was uh, a tendency to sort of separate the box from everything around it. So, you know, I mean, really, when we want to think about, you know, well, what makes a person do what they do or an animal, um, you know, we can't have a box at all. Uh, we can't only look at what's inside. We can't only look at what's outside. Um, there's a constant interplay between these things. And, you know, I think if you, if you, uh, you know, put any neuroscientist into a corner. I mean, of course, they would absolutely wholeheartedly agree with this. But I do think that um, there is a tendency in our field to sort of view, uh, you know, neural processes as happening only in the brain, engaging only the types of cells and the types of activities that we think are important, and to some extent to ignoring uh, a lot of this other stuff that goes on. Mm -hmm. Now, one thing you mentioned, neuroscientists, what are are there any local fields that are not in neuroscience that uh, you like to connect with or you check research of in connection to what you are doing? Well, my, I mean, my own work uh, actually engages a lot with, with uh, chemistry and, to some, you know, and, and also some rarefied sub-branches of physics. Mm -hmm. uh, so for my lab work, I mean, yeah, I, I interact actually a lot with chemists and, uh, and, and sort of you know, bioengineers as well at my my main appointment, actually, at MIT is in the bioengineering department because of that. Um, uh, but, you know, that's not about stuff related to the mind. I mean, those are, um, those are um, uh, you know, that relates to my work on developing chemical probes, which obviously engages with chemistry. Um, I think in, in thinking about the mind, of course, um, you know, historically, neuroscience, I'm sorry, has been somewhat opposed to psychology. You know, psychology is the group that, don't care about how it works. They just care about, uh, or they don't. They don't mm -hmm. care about the physical substance of a person brings about behavior. They only care about mental function in some abstract sense. And of course, you know, one of the things that's been, um, you know, I think very good for the progress of science in the past, uh, let's say, uh, fifty years or so, uh, has been the convergence of neuroscience and psychology, most prominently in the form of what's called cognitive science or cognitive neuroscience. Um, you know, which which does take some account of, well, how physically uh, the mind might be facilitated um, by the brain. Um, and I think, you know, a, a change that we may see happening more and more um, in the future is actually a bit of convergence between uh, neuroscience and the, um, you know, the kind of the biology out, outside of neuroscience. Um, you know, in some sense, neuroscience came from that same biology. You know, the first, uh, you know, some of the really famous discoveries in neuroscience were done, uh, you know, done by people messing around with uh, cells from squids and things like that. Uh, you know, where the biology was front and center, the, the connection to, uh, you know, old-fashioned biology was front and center. 
Right. Just think what we've what we've been learning about lately, um, or at least some of what we've been learning about lately, is in fact uh, the interactions between uh, other facets of biology and mental function. So a couple of examples are, um, you know, there's been a sort of a boom in studies of of something called the gut microbiome, the set of microorganisms. Uh, that live in your gut. And one of the interesting facets of those microorganisms is that they actually influence mental function and behavior. Um, I discussed that a little bit in my book and there are other books that kind of go into this in, in, in uh, you know, really gory detail. Um, uh, but it, it's a good example of how the periphery of the body, the part that's outside the brain, actually influences what's going on in the brain and ultimately behavior. Another area of convergence is in immunology. Uh, uh, where it's been it's been found that uh, well two two things of interest I think one is that um, there are processes uh, in the brain such as for instance the formation of connections uh, between cells called synapses um, that seem to emulate or seem to parallel analogous processes that take place in the immune system the immune system of course is um, the set of cells and, and and biochemicals that circulate around our, our bodies and fight off uh, you know, pathogens. Um, so uh, the immune system seems to be like the nervous system in some key ways. And in addition, the nervous system seems to play an important role in kind of tuning up the nervous system. So, uh, you know, people think, for instance, that the process whereby synapses are um, are kind of uh, selected or, or, or elim- selectively eliminated, actually, during development uh, depends on immune cells coming up and essentially gobbling up pieces of, of synapses, pieces of those connections between brain cells in a way that helps us develop uh, develop our brains. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Anyway, so the point is there's a lot outside neuroscience that seems to impinge on neuroscience. I read it to some extent. Um, there are other people who are really on the forefront of, the, of these uh, kind of areas of overlap who read it even more. Mm-hmm. Now... In 2019, what are some uh, goals you have related to your study and or content you'd be putting out in relation to that? Yeah, well, I mean, my my own uh, work, um, you know, as I said, it focuses largely on trying to, um, you know, bridge molecular scale and whole brain uh, function uh, uh, in in studies of the brain. And so our lab um, has developed a number of new uh, chemical probes the MRI equivalent of dyes that we use in the brain. And we've got a few new ideas that we're um, uh, just in the process of developing. And I think we'll have um, actually a decent number of uh, nice things to say about those this year in 2019. Um, another direction of our research that that actually grew in part from my work on that book is um, uh, studies of how the brain interacts with its surroundings. And, and we have also kind of a, I think a pretty nice study that that's maturing. It's not, uh, not written up yet, not written up for a paper. Uh, but it's, uh, it's gonna, it's gonna enable us to, uh, look at some of the ways in which, uh, brain periphery interactions are, are necessary for, uh, things that I think we previously attributed to the brain alone, uh, phenomenon. Hmm. Is there like a, a sense that whenever you're in a very specific area and, Maybe someone in Switzerland is doing something along similar lines, or how does a scientist know they are in the forefront of their category, or where do you get that sense from, or is it like the machinery that's available, you can see this is as far as we've gotten as a collective? 
Yeah. Well, um, you know, uh, there's some fields of, um, you know, investigation where you can kind of work in a vacuum where you don't necessarily need to have communication with your colleagues. And so, um, mm. you know, mathematics, for instance, is famous for that, although in practice it's not, it shouldn't be as famous for that as it is. <laughs> Our field is not like that. Um, so there are constantly innovations that are that are taking place, innovations and discoveries that are taking place in, in allied fields, and um, you have to stay on top of them. Um, you know, as a successful researcher, uh, it is essential to uh, you know read papers, the publications of other people working in the field, and that's the main mechanism uh, by which you keep track of. Right. You know what's being done, what needs to be done, and what um, ideas or principles or findings you can incorporate into your own study. So, you know, we do that. I'm not sure I'm the best person um, at staying on top of everything the world is doing, um, but uh, but it is essential, and uh, you know, it, it, it is how we how we answer the question you posed. That makes sense. I always yeah. wondered about that. This is wonderful. I am glad to have had you on this episode and to examine the brain and where we go with understanding it all right well thank you so much for speaking with me it's been a pleasure wonderful and we are out